Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Fair Perspectives. I'm Wilfred Riley, Senior Fellow at Fair and guest from Episode 2, filling in today for Angel Eduardo. My co-host is Melissa Chen, who you will hear from shortly. Today, we'll be speaking with Constantin Kissin. Uh, some housekeeping. This will be the last episode of the first season of Fair Perspectives. Season 2 will be launching in the new year with a brand new format, so you'll be seeing more of me then. And we look forward to announcing more details very shortly. Now, Konstantin Kissin is a Russian-British comedian, podcaster, writer, and social commentator. He made international headlines in 2018 by refusing to sign a quote-unquote university behavioral agreement form, which banned jokes about religion and atheism and insisted that all humor must be respectful and kind. He is also the creator and co-host of the Trigonometry YouTube show, where two comics interview economists, political experts, journalists, and social commentators about interesting, controversial, and challenging subjects. In this episode, we discuss Twitter under Elon Musk's leadership, why Sam Harris left that platform, why free speech absolutism is a trap, how the Western culture war affects views on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, Russia's own internal politics, Constantin's book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, redefining words for political purposes, wokeness in comedy, the debate surrounding gender ideology and trans issues, and why the UK seems better equipped to handle this than the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Constantin Kissin. Constantine Kissin, welcome to Fair Perspectives. Thanks for having me, guys. So one thing that I really love about you and the show is that I think it has become very difficult to thread the needle in modern discourse. It's really difficult to be anti-woke without being crazy to discuss immigration in an honest way without being racist or or uh, talking about COVID lockdowns without being, you know, super radical about vax positions. Um, and I think in the last couple of years, you know, both you and uh, Francis have built this uh, this platform, this this podcast, Trigonometry, that that kind of has captured a weird uh, a, a zeitgeist that that is um, that is kind of successful in threading this needle. You see it with even with the Russia-Ukraine stuff, you know, people who are so anti-war that they're pro-war, pro-tyranny. 
Um, so I, it's really been a joy to see uh, to see you guys grow and and, and become successful. Uh, to that, I, I wanted to get into kind of a, a topic that that's very close and dear to our hearts. It's it's current right now. Um, it's what's happening with with Twitter. Um, it seems like there was a clip that went very viral. Um, you know, it was a concatenation of events. It started with this clip that you and 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 Francis uh, did an interview with Sam Harris that went super viral, and it it led to this uh, series of events that now, as of, of you know Thanksgiving 2022, Sam Harris has officially left Twitter, and everyone's talking about it like like it was his funeral. But uh, I wonder if you can weigh in a little bit on what do you, what are you thinking about the, the the changes on Twitter and and a little bit on this you know why Sam Harris left and how you feel about it. Well, first of all, thank you for that extremely generous introduction. I don't know if I can claim that we've captured the zeitgeist exactly. There's a small niche of people who want to not go crazy in either direction. We're trying to speak to them as much as we can. How big that niche is, I'm not sure right now because everybody seems pretty crazy at this point in time. But in terms of Twitter and Sam Harris, I, I like the changes of Twitter. I think a paid model where you, you pay to use it uh, encourages different types of behavior. Uh, from people, uh, very, very different. And that's been our experience. We have a platform that we use for our supporters called Locals. And when people have to pay to be a member of a thing, and it's you, you treat it differently and you speak to people differently and you behave differently. So I like that. I think, uh, you know, Elon's talked a lot about how he's going to release all the censorship backstory. Back and that I really want to see because I'd like to see what's been going on for the last eight years. Thank you very much. I mean, you know, a, a lot of us have felt very strongly that there was some shenanigans going on there. But I want to find out because I'm pretty sure there's something to find out. Uh, and I'd like to see that. And then we can talk about, you know, which side does more to undermine democracy and all of that. And I don't make this as a partisan point. I just think there's been a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that uh, I don't like. And I, I really hope that Elon, you know, releases a little bit of that in terms of how things work. And by the way, we know that all the big tech companies worked in concert on censoring COVID stuff, on censoring other stuff. So whatever is behind the scenes of Twitter is probably happening everywhere else as well. So from that perspective, I like what he's done. I like even more what he said he will do that hasn't, he hasn't done yet. So let's see if that happens. And in terms of Sam Harris, uh, he put out a, uh, I think, a thing on his podcast earlier this week in which he talked about I think I actually haven't had a chance to listen to it, but what I've been told is basically, you know, he thinks it's it's bad and, and he doesn't want to be there. Is that broadly accurate? Yeah. Um, he, he, yeah. he says that Twitter is a crack house, not a public square. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds like I should listen to it because that sounds funny. But um, if, if his general point is that Twitter is not good, I think you've got to remember, he, I mean, this isn't to say he's right or wrong, frankly. It's just like we all have our own Twitter experience. Remember that. So, so I can see why Sam would, would see it in that way in the last few months, particularly, right? I, I think whether it is a bad place or a good place kind of depends on what's going on, right? Like, I love Twitter. I have a great time on Twitter. There's times when I have a less good time on Twitter because a lot of people are criticizing me. And, the, that, you know, when, when you have a big account, it's quite a lot of stuff to take in. It affects your experience. You know what I mean? So for someone like Sam, who has had to, you know, take a lot of bullets in the last, you know, since the summer, basically, and I hate to say it since our interview, because it's not what I ever wanted to happen with him. 
you know, he's had to deal with a lot. And so I think from his perspective, that's probably true. Uh, do I personally, from where I'm sitting, agree with it? No, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, a bad place. I think it's got a lot of drawbacks and social media in general has massive drawbacks. But of course, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You, you and I wouldn't have met in London a week ago and had a great, you, do you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a networking yeah. thing for, for us too. It's the way, the way we connect the world. And in some ways, you know, we've seen with the war in Ukraine or, or, or China right now or Iran right now, we are a more connected world as a result of all of this social media, right? And we can click into what's going on in different places and care about them, even if it's futile, but, or maybe we can do something. You know what I mean? Um, we can spread the word about things. So, you know, I, I don't see it that way. I think uh, when people have a bad personal experience with something, they always assume that whole thing is bad. You know, maybe, you know, for Sam, maybe he'll come back. I hope he does. I do think, you know, you talk about how people said, you know, uh, you, everyone talked like it was his funeral. I was one of those people because I will miss Sam on Twitter. Uh, I, I liked reading his thoughts. He's one of the, you know, in, in my sort of like last six years intellectually, he's one of the people who he was there at the very beginning of the journey. And I haven't gone back much since, but he was there. And so yeah. I don't, I don't want to throw that in the bin. I don't know if Sam's going to say something fascinating six months from now, even though I currently disagree with him on a lot. So for me, it was, it was sad. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed with the Twitter conversation is that there seems to be almost a debate about the value of information. So I think a lot of people like Sam uh, assume that the people that are coming back to Twitter are going to have really nothing of value to offer. You see a lot of these comments like, you know, Elon Musk is letting his his fellow little boys back on. You know, these are these are white supremacists this is a Jaron Taylor and Stefan Molyneux and so on down the line. And I think the, the reality is that if you allow anyone to talk freely who doesn't threaten people, you're going to see people like that. I mean, in my opinion, somewhat unfortunately. But I think what you said about the algorithms earlier, Elon Musk saying he has these codes and he's going to release what Twitter is doing. That, that's a very uh -huh. insightful point, And that's accurate, because the reality is that a lot of perfectly mainstream people were almost certainly painted as extreme, painted as radical and essentially banned or shadow banned across that site. I mean, we saw these insane stories. I mean, you were one of the, in my opinion, the wittier commenters on some of this stuff, like the New York Post. I mean, America's third oldest newspaper or whatever couldn't speak on the platform for weeks. Um, I guess just sort of as a very quick follow when it comes to Twitter and social space. And this might lead in some questions about, you know, Kanye West and all these, these other things that are going on. But I mean, do you, do you have any worries about kind of the future of speech in the broader social market is as everyone returns i mean does should everyone be allowed to talk do good ideas beat bad ones or is the is there a huge downside risk to that which seems to be i don't know how well the questions were but that seems to be sam's whole thing that this is this is all bad my my opinion is that we're going to see algorithmically that a huge number of perfectly normal people including me and you from time to time were painted as crazy radicals but, but what do you think? Is the, is the social space devalued now? or what, What's your take? Look, I, I think at the risk of sounding like I'm not answering your question exactly, I think it's complicated. Mm -hmm. So first of all, let's set the context, right? Twitter, do you know how extremely hard it is to moderate a platform with that many people and to do it consistent? Like a basketball referee can't get a game consistent and you expect these guys, you know, however many hundreds of them, they're, by the way, mostly in one country, so they don't understand culture. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Or no? For sure. Yes, go so, ahead. Go for it. 
it, as you probably both know, in the UK, the word cunt is considered perfectly usable and normal. Oh, you cunt. Yeah. Oh, good to see you, cunt. That's how we talk. In America and in many other English-speaking countries, it is extremely, in, it's, it's an extremely bad thing to say, and people will, will, will take it in a completely different way to the way it will be heard in the UK and Australia and New Zealand and, and a couple of other English-speaking places. So YouTube's enforcement rules, and I know this because we run trigonometry, right, say that that word automatically means your entire video is de uh, demonetized, right? In the UK, we say that word all the time, but it's because it's an American company with American standards that we have these rules enforced on us by people somewhere else, right? So even within one language group, you can't moderate things fairly, right? And it's the same with behavior and the same with everything else. So there is no way in hell you're going to get entirely consistent moderation on something like Twitter, unless you have no moderation at all, right? However, does anyone really think that you can have no moderation at all? I don't think so. I think there will always be a limit. It's just about, we, we, that's, all we, we'll, that's all we're ever arguing about is where does the Overton window end? How, how few people in the world really think there should be no window at all? Like anything goes, you can harass people, you can whatever, right? There's, um, there's always going to be some restriction. And the question is about where it should be. I think Twitter's moving in the right direction by allowing more speech, because I don't think the, the Overton window has been wide enough. And I still don't think it's wide enough. It's not because I approve of the opinions of these people. I just think we should always err on the side of letting them speak. And by the way, I don't know if you caught the Tim Cast uh, thing from a couple of days yes. ago, right? Free speech kind of works, huh? Well, with those, yeah. with those clowns, yeah. But no, I mean, I, I, that's, that's a key point, that for a long time on Twitter, the Overton window was set by people to the left of probably 95% of the general population. Right. I mean, when yeah. I look at you two, I don't really see radical, you know, hard body, Pat Buchanan style conservatives when it comes to sexuality, women's rights, so on down the line. But the the idea was that virtually anyone who didn't fit a certain very specific model, Matt Iglesias is being attacked today for being too far to the right, was sort of right. a dangerous uh, rightist provocateur. And I mean, I think Elon Musk, who's maybe center right at most, it does have the idea of opening that up so that the limits again become fraud and child pornography and so on, as opposed to offending someone. So interesting. Yeah, well, look, I, I think the, the fact is two centrists like me and Melissa being considered, you know, out there or whatever is, is just, you know, it just shows you what it was. But you're right. If, if you have an organization that's controlled by quite wacky or maybe really wacky people. And I don't mean that they're crazy. I just mean in terms of the political spectrum, they're out there, right? And every time anyone sort of goes, well, maybe we should move the Overton window just slightly towards the center. And they're like, Nazis are coming. Well, <laughs> then you're going to have a bit of a problem, right? So so I'm glad that we are now slightly dragging sort of the, the Overton window a little bit in both directions. Let people talk and let them discredit themselves as we've seen it works. It works. Uh, doesn't mean that there is no limit at all. I mean, the, this Fuentes idiot, he's been banned from Gab. You, you know you're saying something right. wrong if you've been banned from Gab. You know what I mean? So there's always going to be people who can't speak anywhere because of this type of restriction. We've always had it. Some, you know, in, in many European countries, you get put in prison for neo-Nazi uh, type stuff. So there's going to be rules, but I think there's, there's going to be a point where the majority of people agree this is kind of where, where it is. That's why I've never called myself a free speech absolutist, because I think it's a kind of 
it's a it's a teenage dream rather than a practical reality. Yeah, you're very you're very smart to do that because it's so easy to paint somebody in the corner the moment they they claim that to be the case because um, even the most uh, absolutist of all would agree that there are certain limits, uh, especially just bring up child porn, for example. You certainly don't believe that something like that should exist uh, on, on Twitter and that it's not an issue of free speech. So, you know, it, it's very easy to trap someone. The moment but it, they- it's not even child porn. I mean, child porn is illegal, but you could say, uh, why doesn't Elon Musk, who calls himself a free speech absolutist, let Alex Jones back on? Correct. Which he drew the line. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's exactly. got their own limits. We we actually talked about that in a constitutional law class today in my kind of primary job, actually, that even the U.S. First Amendment, which people pretend to be very absolute about, has the giant exceptions. I mean, it's not just child porn. It's any quote unquote obscenity. If anyone wants to prosecute it, fraud and theft. I mean, as you get into that crypto sector, libel, slander, I mean, huge on social media, mm. clear and present danger. Actually, I think the final one without rambling on about this, that's where you get into Alex Jones, where you're openly saying things like major crises didn't happen, or this mm. particular location, the Pizzagate thing is a deadly threat to you, you might want to take care of that. Many people are going to ban that. And quite a lot of that crosses the line of legality. So free speech, it's yeah. like free market, it doesn't mean you can sell slaves, it doesn't mean absolutely anything. But the Overton not right. being set by five former sociology majors from Berkeley is is likely a good thing for the vast majority yeah. of us. So I'm I, w- I would agree. Well, for all of us, actually, it's good for those people, too, because they get exposed to stuff. Uh, you know, people learn like I, I, you know, in 2015, I, I would have been a, I mean, I wouldn't have been a woke guy, but I kind of would have been you know, a typical comedian. If you'd saw, if you'd seen me on stage, I'd be doing Trump jokes and whatever. People change their mind as they're exposed to information, some of them, right? And when you learn more about the world, you kind of go, well, some of the stuff I no longer thought makes any sense anymore. So even those 5% of people who are the, the Berkeley graduates, it's good for them to know the country isn't exactly where they are. And maybe, you know, one out of a million of them will will change their mind. And that's good. And then perhaps if you actually hear Jared Taylor talk and realize that he's crazy, but not a complete idiot, and that is the extreme right, you no longer think that Melissa Chen is the extreme right. And you get a better sense of the spectrum that exists. Perhaps. Yeah. Well, I, I will always think Melissa's on the extreme right. Yeah. I mean, it's just like looking at her. <laughs> the jewelry, the business suit, an evil just, lord just... sort of vibe. Just so right wing. I know. I know. It's crazy. Um, (laughs) Well, I really like the point that you brought up, though, about setting the terms for the rest of the world, because that is, I think, Elon's big challenge moving forward. We are living in a time right now where there are, you know, it's, it's interesting, the major conflicts that are going on, they're erupting in, you know, enemies, traditional enemies of the United States. It's Iran, it's China, and it's Russia. And so... Twitter is dealing constantly with so much, you know, just footage and, and, and tweets coming out from these places because there's nowhere else for them to go because information and, and social media platforms and internet access in general are censored in these three countries. And, and the stuff coming out from China right now is just mm. kind of mind-blowing. Um, and, and Russia and Ukraine, which has been playing on for the last, I don't know, now what, eight, are we in the ninth month of, of, this, of this war? Um, and, and knowing how to deal with something like that, I think, uh, you know, you talked about the verification process, right? Um, what does it, what does it mean for, you know, accounts that are, are, 
trying to disseminate information of, of protests going on on the ground in these countries um, of a new rocket shell attack somewhere in Ukraine. What if what if citizen journalists cannot afford the the eight dollars a month? I mean, you know, how do we deal with that kind of um, that kind of issue, right? Because because at the end of the day, um, the media, as you said, is even more gatekept, right? Talk about the five sociology majors from Berkeley, um, the mm-hmm. the traditional media, and and so Twitter is our chance to actually kind of uh, challenge that Overton window, and so it's so important to to actually make sure that. Um, globe from from a global perspective, we're not limiting it as well, which is actually one of my biggest concerns with how Elon seems to be moving in this direction of blue check everything. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I think certainly in terms of the practical, I mean th- that consideration is very important. Uh, I think um, there there is that drawback, and it should always be uh, looked into. But I also think you know practical experience with the conflict in Ukraine, for example. I follow very, very closely, and I speak to family mm. in, in both countries and in nearing countries, and you know, and people who who understand what's going on. But I also read R- Russian and Ukrainian Telegram channels. Like, I don't get any information about the conflict in Ukraine from Twitter at all. And usually, mm. if I see something on Twitter, I think I think this could, I, I don't trust it nearly as much as I if I've seen it on a Russian and a Ukrainian Telegram channel, right? Then you kind of go, well, both sides are saying it's true, and this is from the source, is probably right. And But what, the reason I bring this up is that what I do see is almost all of that content is being report, reposted on Twitter by like Western-facing Russians and Ukrainians. You see what I'm saying? Who write in English. So, so what's happening in the information is getting out just through a few conduits who've made it their business to reproduce the, the information from, from its source. Um, so I think this idea, and by the way, look, Ukraine is, is not that poor a country. Like even a citizen journalist can afford $8 a month in Ukraine, especially if they're putting out a lot of information, they'll be asked to write articles. It, you know, like it, it's a process that will give them the credibility as a journalist and opportunities, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it will be a worthwhile investment that they can make, I think. So I think, um yeah the, there needs to be that is the one downside of the verification thing that was always going to be there which is what do you do with people who should be anonymous and it's not just journalists not paying eight dollars because he i think the, the thing that he was saying was that it's payment verification it's not identity verification right so someone could still be anonymous but right. they just right. would have the the card details confirmed so I, I just think these things need working out. Um, and whenever you disrupt something as complex as Twitter, you're going to get stuff like that. But the the, di- the difference to me is uh, it's very clear to me that the person who now runs Twitter is intent on making it better. Right. I, I, I don't remember having that feeling in the past. You know what I mean? I'm I'm interested in in kind of pivoting to Russia and Ukraine because um, it, it, it seems I, I, I'm seeing you, you know, out there. <laughs> addressing a, a very anti-woke audience that you've cultivated, uh, that we've all cultivated, actually. Um, and a faction of them have seen, or seems to be looking at this conflict through the lens of the culture war. I, I'm, I'm struggling to find, to, 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 you know, kind of figure out what is going on bet- behind this kind of like on the right, um, almost, I wouldn't say support, but tacit, almost tacit support of, of, of Russia. Um, in this in this conflict, what are your thoughts on that? 
to a man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And if you view the world through the cultural lens, then you will see the culture war everywhere. You will project it onto everything. And uh, then Putin becomes uh, the great uh, Christian savior of Western civilization or whatever these people are running around thinking. Um, look, I, the, the truth is that, I, first of all, I, I, uh, I know that I know exactly what you mean and you're not. I, I can see why it's true what you say that I've and we've cultivated an anti-work audience, but I've never I've never set out to cultivate any particular audience, if I'm honest. I've always just tried to say what I think. And there have been plenty of times when portions of our audience uh, and my own audience in the past have gone, well, I don't agree with this and I'm unsubscribing and I'm not supporting you financially and I'm mm -hmm. leaving. And we've gone, well, that's great because that means you're not enjoying the show anymore and that's fine. And we'll find other people who are enjoying the show, right? This is what happens. You know, you're not going to, if you're true to what you believe, you're not going to go through life uh, agreeing with everybody, especially if you're in a kind of truth-seeking business, as I hope we all are, right? Like when we begin bringing guests on Trigonometry, I want to find out the truth. I don't want to, I don't want to please my audience because I believe that our audience are people who are interested in the truth. And if you're not interested in truth, well, maybe you're not our audience. And that's fine. That, that's okay. That, that's absolutely fine. I, I, I subscribe. And, I really subscribe for, for the Russian accent that you do. That's, that's actually <laughs> why, why I'm a listener. No, no, I wasn't trying to chase you personally away. I'm just saying I respect people's right not to enjoy the show. So I've right. not tried to cultivate that audience. But the answer to, to the, the, the short answer to your question is if, if you have this thing on the left, which you absolutely do, which is I support the current thing. And if, if CNN and MSNBC said, I have to care about this passionately, then I will. And there are, and believe this without question. There are people who do that. That's absolutely true. And, and likewise, you have the exact same thing on the right, which is I oppose the current thing. If CNN and MSNBC are saying something is true, it must be mm -hmm. false. Sorry to all bust in, but that's an interesting point that's worth repeating, that a great deal of right-wing pop culture, when you look at stuff like growing opposition to vaccines right now, uh, is just opposition to the current thing. I've heard people say that online, but that's that's really well summarized, in fact. Yeah, that, that describes kind of a lot of it. That if something right. goes on, I mean, the, the reaction to Blue Lives Matter versus Black Lives Matter and so on, a great deal of this is just uh, well-marketed, often better marketed, because many on the right or in the business world backlash to whatever left-wing media is promoting at the time. And that that's inherently kind of problematic, isn't it? I mean, you're not going to grow a self-sustaining cultural movement out of that. That's where the idea of reactionary almost comes into play and becomes negative. You're just playing on the other side's territory and kind of dancing with them. So what is, what is right, what is sane kind of center right to right self-definition look like is probably a question worth asking for a lot of people, especially in my opinion, a lot of young men in all of our audiences. You don't, you don't see a whole lot of that. I'm so glad you made that point because one of the things I've been doing for the last couple of months is talking to friends of ours, people that are in this space and kind of going like, you know, getting a dinner together, Winston Marshall and I, you know, do that every now and again uh, and just going, guys, like, okay, we're again, we know what we're against. Those of us who are not woke, but also not insane anti-woke people. We just want to be sensible. Um, we don't believe in these extremes. Okay. We know what we're against. We, we know what are we for? What do we believe? What what, what is what do we actually think is the thing that we're offering the world? What is our view of the world going to offer people that they will go? Oh yeah, I want some of that. 
right? Or, or, or is all your offering is, oh, those guys over there are idiots. Well, they are, and those guys over there are idiots too. And, and so how do we find that space in the middle? So I've been thinking about that a lot. But I agree with you completely about what you say. And it, it is my firm belief that uh, if Donald Trump had been reelected in 2020 and Vladimir Putin had invaded in February as he did, which, by the way, I think probably wouldn't have happened, but never mind. If he, if he had been reelected and he was still in office when this happened and he chose to support Ukraine uh, in the way that Joe Biden has, I guarantee you that almost the entirety of the people who currently oppose supporting Ukraine would yeah. oppose it yeah. and vice oh, versa. That's, that's what would happen. And so the Democrats would currently be going, oh, no, no, we can't, we can't fund you know, whatever Nazis or whatever in Ukraine or whatever these people are coming up with and, and you know, scrutinizing the way that, you know, Lend-Lease was executed and asking all the <laughs> difficult questions about oh biolabs in Ukraine, right? Right? No, I mean, and yeah. the Republicans would be going, there are no biolabs in Ukraine, there are no Nazis, and uh, we need to give them more Patriot weapons or mm. whatever it is. That's what would be happening. No, I mean, I've, I've done some of the professional survey data on this without false modesty. And this is just obviously correct. It's the same with any of this stuff. I mean, Trump and Biden ran a very close race because both were terrible candidates off. But I mean, when you look at the same thing with vaccines, for example, I mean, Trump was very yeah. pro vaccine. In fact, Operation Warp Speed, Trump did a pretty good job of getting the Western vax out there. He actually should get some credit for that. But I guarantee you, if, you know, the big guy had been up there on the podium talking in sort of patriotic Ronald Reagan terms. It's your duty to get two shots. What are you, all punk? Wear your mask around old ladies. It would be absolutely every right-wing guy would have two masks on their face, camo print, and there'd be incredible criti- criticism of like the unwashed feminist skaters that refuse to mask up. You'd see the exact same thing 100% flip. You see that all the time in partisan politics. Right. Like, why don't blacks vote Republican? There are many, many examples like this. Just because people are tribal and they want to be in their tribe and they'd rather be in the tribe than 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 not than be consistent with what they believe. They they're happy to mold to whatever the tribe is going for. I understand that. It's it's an understandable instinct. I it, I don't personally share it, but but there are a lot of people who think in that way. And and so I almost kind of like I think when the the invasion first happened and I was quite emotional about it because as, as people know, I have family in both countries and uh, I worry for all of them, you know, in Russia, in Ukraine, everybody. Um, I was quite emotional. I found it difficult to see people going off these deep ends as mm. I saw it. But now I've sort of got to a point where I'm like, I don't even blame you. You don't know anything about this country. You've never been to Ukraine. You don't speak Russian or Ukrainian. You haven't read a, a piece of news in one of the two original languages ever. You know, you went on Twitter, you saw your favorite three culture war commentators going, this is the, the truth about Ukraine. And that's what you went for. And then you saw a video of a guy you kind of saw, you know, slightly respect from somewhere who was once right about woke idiots. And before you know it, you're like, oh, well, this is what's happening in Ukraine, right? And, and I, I get it. I, I, I genuinely get it. There, there are countries about which I, I am certain I have the same opinion. Like, I don't have the first idea of what's happening in Latin America. And if someone that I respect that told me, well, this is what's happening. And then some, I saw a video somewhere. And, you know, do you see what I'm saying? I, I'd probably yeah. have that opinion as well. Now, the difference between me and these people is my opinion would be very weakly held. I would say, I don't have any idea what's happening in Ukraine, but I did hear that somebody once said that blah, blah, blah. Is that true? 
right? But we don't live in that world. In the world that we live in now, it's like, well, I once heard this thing, therefore that's the truth, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight for that truth until my last breath. It's kind of where we've got to. Uh, I try not to have too strongly held opinions about things I don't know a lot about, uh, but a lot of people don't. Hmm. This lack of principle thing really bothers me too. Um, you know, I, I always said that if if Trump was a, a Democrat, he would have won the Nobel Peace Prize for you know the Abraham Accords. Um, it's 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 pretty clear to me that 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 has you know changed and recalibrated a lot of things in the Middle East, and and that that was one of his signature you know foreign policy moves that really made a huge impact. But we can't recognize anything good that Trump did because he's just. You know he's just toxic, and and if a Democrat had done that, I mean, Obama won a Nobel Prize for what exactly? I I, I don't know. Um, so, you know, it, it's just. I mean, there's a politically incorrect answer to that question, but let's not go there. Right. <laughs> diversity. I don't know. Um, well, I think he won for being not Bush. Uh, that was it, because we had just come out eight, you know, eight years war on terror. It, he just. One because he opposed the the Iraq War, probably. Um, yeah, but but come on, Melissa. There's also there's another factor too, which is we were all inspired by him, right? He was oh, he is true. this yeah, yeah. handsome, charismatic, That's true. Uh, That's young, true. young black guy who's going to come out and heal America. That that right. that was part of the sales pitch. That's what he got the peace not the peace prize for. Um, you know, the interesting thing about this, just from an amoral political science perspective, is that Obama kept doing almost all of the same shit Bush was doing. And this is something right. that when you guys talk about tribal perspective versus reality, just sort of gets ignored. I mean, Obama jokingly called himself the deporter in chief and said he shipped more illegal immigrants out of the country than anyone ever before. And everyone just sort of kind of smiled and ignored it and patted him on the back and said, well, he looks great in that tan suit. So it's the ultimate example of tribalism. Like your guy can't be doing that. Your guy can't be building concentration camps for little kids. So it didn't happen. And this, as yeah, but yeah, Obama is also like the the left always has the, the they're nice people thing as well, right? Yes, like yes. The, the, the the right, they're like pragmatic and they're doing the right thing, but they're kind of like doing it in an immoral way. That's kind of like the the angle, right? Whereas the left, they they may be fucking things up a lot. But but they really were trying and they were doing their best and you know real communism hasn't been tried and and, and all that right like the, it's but but the intention is good whereas the right is always assumed to have bad intention right so Obama had that benefit and also he was incredibly charismatic and eloquent and people like charismatic and eloquent people and they don't like people like George Bush who can't talk straight and and whatever and who sound dumb I'm pretty sure George Bush was not dumb I mean he was president of the United States like you've got to have some intelligence to do that but we all thought he was dumb because he sounds dumb right um and uh not we all i mean you know the the, the vast majority of people or many people uh, but but obama sounded really really inspirational and charismatic and eloquent and clever and we, we go for that it's it's a you know the job of politics is partly about sales and he's a great salesman well, and moving forward, Biden has continued a lot of Trump policies as well, especially on foreign policy. Mm. There, there's not a single, you know, tariff that uh, Biden actually rolled back when it comes to, you know, the, the tariffs imposed on China, um, which you know, all this America first stuff. Biden is not only doubling down, he's actually doubling down on it. Um, he's added new things and, and which kind of undercuts this whole Beijing Biden narrative that, that the right was saying. So I, I think the way out of this, and that's just my opinion, is, you know, we, we need to stop. I mean, it's so, 
it's very easy to just like fall into tribalism when the other side is also doing it. There's no incentive for anybody to just come out and say, you know what? Mm. Yeah, this is, this is, this is not right. Um, you know, like to criticize their own side. There, there really isn't. And, and as you said, social media actually incentivizes not doing that generally. Um, you know, you don't really have an audience, but, but again, I don't know if that's true because you guys have cultivated your audience and it has grown and, and, you know, you are using truth as a, or, or truth seeking as a North star, um, and not a certain ideology, which, which is so refreshing in the day of, you know, in, in how our, our media has, has really evolved, especially in the last two years. I mean, I just saw Justin Trudeau coming out saying, oh, we need to support all these protesters in China. They're supporting, <laughs> they're, they're out there protesting all these draconian lockdowns and, and, you know, we should support the Chinese protesters. And it's just like, did everyone just memory hold this? You know, it, it, that, that is just astounding to me. Totally. Totally. Uh, no, the, there is, there's not a lot of consistency in Trudeau. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't send help to the Chinese government. But yeah, you know, we've got to to a point, I think, where I think enough people are starting to be fed up of the obviously partisan stuff in both directions that they're, again, the, the ones that were always asking questions, they're now starting to ask questions of the, the respective sides and going, well, who's, who's maybe taking a look at both sides? I think it's, an, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that's what we, we tried to do, you know. Uh, I think that's why... We, we do these calls with our supporters and we had this lady who joined us uh, a couple of hours ago and she just said, you know what? I've been an independent voter for like 25 years. And, you know, maybe the, the, I think there's going to be more independent voting going forward because it's, this tribalism is going to, you know, people are tribal, but there's a big enough tribe of non-tribal people that I, I want to speak to. They're the ones that interest me. Hmm. If I can jump in quickly with one question about Ukraine, you, you mentioned this in mm. passing, like you have relatives in Russia and Ukraine. This might sound almost naive, but how, what would you describe the situation in the conflict as being at the basic level of what's going on right? I mean, one of the most consistent things I hear is I don't trust any news from Russia or Ukraine that I hear mm. in the Western media. I mean, from many right. of the people I know who are grad students, for example, who work in the arts, the videos of Russian and Ukrainian atrocities, for example, seem certainly on the Russian side, pretty obviously found. I mean, it's just it seems like complete BS almost all the time. What's your take? I mean, is is Putin as bad an actor as he's being painted? Does Ukraine have a fighting chance? What's what's going on from someone from the region? OK, so. Uh we should probably talk about the things that like everybody would agree on first, and then we can talk about, you know, who believes what, right? What everybody can agree on is the fact, which is that Russia invaded in February and attempted to cut Ukraine in half by invading from the north, from the south, and also simultaneously pushing from the east to lock up the Ukrainian forces in that area, right? And when that happened, they uh, made the... They made progress in the south simply because they had uh, traitors on the Ukrainian side who helped them take over Kherson, which is the city that Ukraine recently liberated in the south. So that, that was they made a big push there. They took the south, Mariupol, etc. In the north, they pushed right towards the capital, Kiev, but within a short order of time, they had to withdraw completely. Right, so they were pushed out of that area. Uh, the same later happened in the northeast 
And in the East, they've continued to make slow, very, very costly advances, costly for both sides. So they are able to push Ukraine very slowly westward while both sides take huge casualties. So it's, it's a complete meat grinder there. And then uh, most recently, uh, the Ukrainians retook the South uh, because when the Russians initially captured Kherson, they pushed beyond the river and ended up being essentially cut off on one bank of the river without access to their support, logistics, etc. So they eventually found the situation untenable and pulled back. So the, the, the it's... It's a stalemate-ish, probably for next month or so, because of winter and things like that. And then it's a, it's in the balance, so to speak. I think um, from an obvious, it, it obviously all depends on how much uh, support the West is prepared to give Ukraine, because they've shown themselves to be very, very keen to fight and win. Uh, but then it's about do they have the the economic and military support to make it happen. Uh, because on their own, they would have been, cap- you know, the entire country would have folded within a week. Well, not within a week, but within within a few months, you could say. Maybe not within a week, within a few months. So, um, yeah, it, it all depends. But right now, the Ukrainians have retaken a lot of territory. Uh, the Russians are increasingly, uh, I definitely, definitely would not use the word mutinous, but there is a lot of talk in sort of Russian commenta- commentator circles that went from you know, we're going to win and everything's going to be amazing and we're going to take over, blah, 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 to like, who's responsible for what's happening right now? Who Who's the guilty person? Because in Russia, this is how, you know, whenever anything goes wrong, it's about who's who can be made responsible for it. So, um, and of course, you must never criticize the president, so someone else must be responsible. So they're trying to find different people who are responsible. They keep firing generals and moving them around and stuff like that. Um, so, it's definitely not currently being seen in Russia as a success by people who understand what's going on. I mean, the ordinary public are watching TV and being told everything's hunky-dory. Um, so it's just, a. I think Ukraine have done way better than anyone really expected, me included. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to win or lose or whatever. Uh, it's completely in the balance and nobody really knows how it's going to end. Do you have a sense of what the anti-Putin sentiment is? Or if at all, uh, like, has mean? it grown? Like, has it grown in Russia? In Russia? Yeah. Uh, I think it probably has grown a little bit. Uh, but um, I, I, if I'm correct in understanding your question, you're sort of going like, how soon are the Russian people going to rise up and overthrow Putin? Not very soon. I think it's, what, it's why is v- that? not v- very, not, 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 not soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More like never, really. Because uh, that's not, that's not what we do in Russia. Okay, so I, I, it's very similar to to China because the the same same questions are being asked right now about about what's going on, and I'm like, uh, sorry, I don't think change is coming. Uh, no, it, no. In China, it's a bit different. I, I do, you know, I think the 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 resentment is actually against specific policies, which which is much better, which is much easier to achieve than than freedom and democracy. These kind of more abstract concepts, right? Um, and and perhaps the, the the government actually be a bit more responsive to to these uh, limited policies. So add to that in in Russia, there's also a, like a a cultural dimension to it, which is the most important thing in in Russian politics is to have a strong leader, uh, and this is a product of centuries of events that taught Russians that basically any time you have a weak leader, bad things happen. 
there is a period in Russian history called Times of Trouble, which is the end of the uh, Rurikid dynasty, where Ivan the Terrible. And by the way, this is uh, to to reinforce that point. Do you, do you know that Ivan the Terrible isn't called Ivan the Terrible in Russian? Yeah, Ivan the Great, he's called, or something. Uh, he's, he's called Ivan the Fearsome hmm. because to be feared is good, even if you're terrible. So if you've got someone who's fearsome and terrible, you go, well, at least he's fearsome, right? Whereas in many other parts of the world, you go, well, he's terrible. Let's get rid of him, right? And what Russians learned is when you don't have a strong leader, as you didn't have in times of trouble and several other times, bad things happen. Famines happen. The wars happen. You get invaded. People die, etc. And so there's this historical um, wound almost in Russian mythology, which is like, you better make sure you've, you ba- you have a strong leader and you back him to the hilt. Now, the good thing about that is when the leader dies, as long as, you know, it's seen to be legitimate, you know, it was a natural death or whatever, the country can flip overnight. I mean, Joseph Stalin dies in 1953. Khrushchev comes in and goes, that really wasn't the good stuff. You know, we, 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 that's not the communism that we were trying to build and everybody moves on all of a sudden, right? So these things can flip very, very quickly. Uh, when when the leadership changes. Now, are people going to overthrow Vladimir Putin? No. Is there going to be a palace coup? I can't imagine one. You know. But if if the time comes and the three of us are still alive when he he goes one way or another, then then you get there is the potential for the country to go in a completely different direction. Completely different. Is that likely though? I don't think so because Russian culture doesn't change. And if you value stability and strength above all, well, why would you need democracy? Democracy is kind of like a rich people's game. Well, so I, I, you know, I grew up in a place where, where we also had a very strong kind of heavy handed kind of government and the, the leader of Singapore, the founder of Singapore, uh, prime minister Lee Kuan Yew actually said this, I'm going to read you the quote. And I, I grew up mm. knowing this. Now, if democracy will not work for the Russians, a white Christian people, can we assume that it will naturally work with Asians? What a racist. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that is a direct quote. That is a direct quote by uh, Lee Kuan Yew, as was in his book. Um, and the, that, that is what he thought uh, yeah. about, about, yeah, about sort of right. like cultural determinism. But, but th- this is the thing that... There's a weird kind of Western arrogance that these sort of powerful, you know, equal rival societies, Russia who we've you know, sparred with for a hundred years, that they're all of a sudden going to change their behavior. We saw this when we were fighting the Arabs during the Iraq war. The idea was what they really need is Western democracy accompanied by exactly. conversions to our capitalist model and Christian missionaries entering the country. And it, it seemed at root like a nonsensical idea, like this may well not work in Iraq. And in fact, you saw the Sunni Shia fighting and so on. I mean, immediately this began. So it's the same thing. I mean, I constantly hearing you say this, that had been my suspicion that there was a 0% chance that a Russian strongman who's doing a pretty competent job was going to be removed from power for scoring a tie in a war. But I just, again, it was one of those, I don't know, really kind of things. But the same thing in China. I mean, she is not going anywhere. I mean, what you're seeing, actually, I can read Chinese at a cute, like first grade level. And I mean, the tweets on China, Chinese Twitter today are basically indicating they're going to open the country. Like one of them earlier today said, you only have to go to the COVID center if you want to. That's my half-ass translation. But I mean, what, what they're saying is mm. the, the biggest, most hated portion of this, you go to this sort of camp for two weeks 
is ending. And in a couple of days, they're going to start unlatching the buildings and so on. And yeah. that's going to be the response to the protests and the very limited rioting. It's not going to be the Communist Party steps down. They're, they're intervening steps you can take before becoming Americans. Right. Completely. <laughs> Unfortunately. And uh, no, no. You, well, it's almost like cultures are different, Will and Melissa, yeah. right? It's almost like not everyone in the world thinks like us. Uh, and you're right, it's Western arrogance because you see this now with the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, you know, and look, the obvious disclaimer, yes, I condemn the way that Qatar treats gay people and women and migrant Slaves. workers. Of course I do. I, I, I do. I think it's terrible. I don't agree with it. But is it fair of us to give them the World Cup, right? Didn't have to happen. It was given to them by FIFA. You give them the World Cup and then you come to their country and you go, oh, this is wrong. We don't like this. And your laws and this are complete. Well, I, I mean, I don't know that it is, you know, even though I think those things are very, very wrong and bad and, and wrong and bad. You bad know? and wrong. But and bad and wrong. But, w w you know, do different cultures have different values. And you, you can't I don't think the West job is to go around to every other country in the world and tell them how to live their lives. Like we don't want people to tell us how to live our lives. Right. Why? Right, why should right. people in other countries do the same? And Russia has its own culture. And I'm afraid in Russian culture, they're going to stick with whoever the top dog is until he stops being top dog. But then there's a, there's an opportunity for change. The problem is the, it's a kind of self-correcting mechanism in Russia because why do you, why has Putin cracked down? Why has he become more authoritarian over time? Why did he invade Ukraine in 2014 and now again? And why did he want the Sochi Olympics so much and all of that? Because as a country gets richer and more stable, and by the way, as a fierce critic of Putin's, I will give him this, under his watch, I'm not saying because of his actions, but under his watch, the country became much more stable and much more prosperous. Mm -hmm. And I actually, in fact, mm -hmm. I take back what I said. It was thanks in many ways to, to his policies. Sure. Now, you may disagree with his policies in some ways, but they did achieve stability. Uh, mm -hmm. They ended the war in Chechnya the, and they, they dealt with the terrorism problem in Russia over time, and uh, which was hugely significant. And the country became more prosperous and stable in, in every other way during his time, right? So what happens when you get to that point? Well, suddenly people go, oh, okay, well, we've got stability, we've got safety, we've got economic prosperity, I'm making more money. Well, maybe maybe we should start thinking about, you know, change, you know, democracy or doing things a bit differently. People start to ask questions, you know, why do we need the strongman leader if, if we're prosperous, stable and, and comfortable and there are no terrorists, right? When we had terrorism, we needed a strongman leader, right? But do we still need to have them? Well, maybe not. People start asking questions, right? And that's the point at which you go, we have external enemies, guys. Look at these evil Ukrainians. Look at what they're doing. The evil Americans have encloaked, they're encloaking Russia in, in their aggressive mentality or whatever it is. The, 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 the generation of foreign threats and internal crackdowns are a product of the fact that Vladimir Putin came to power at a time when the three of us were worried about the millennium bug, right? He's been in power since basically 2000. So he's, he's, there is going to be natural kind of diminishing of his position unless he takes steps to reinforce it. And the war in Ukraine and taking Crimea were huge boosts to his popularity. The, taking Crimea in 2014 basically made him invulnerable in, in Russian politics, right? 
Like yeah. there was no questioning him after that. Like this is a guy who's taken back Russian territory. Um, this is this is how Russia works. Sorry. And this this is very analogous to what I worry about with uh, China wanting to take over Taiwan as well. I mean, it's mm. it's baked into with you know when you're when you're being educated, um, you know, for all the way from kindergarten to university in in China, um, this is drilled into you about Taiwan being rightfully China's, and uh, the people are very supportive of that. And when you're when you you know, at the end of the day, strongman governments are always paranoid about their legitimacy. That's also why they try so hard, as you say, to participate in these like global events like the G20, uh, you know, like the UN meetings and things like that, or, or, or hosting the Olympics, because participation in the global community gives strongmen legitimacy. And which is, you know, whether or not we should allow that is, is, is a side conversation. Hmm. But but this this drive to to take back Taiwan is another way to shore it up when your legitimacy is slowly eroding back home or is being questioned because of you know policies that that are really own goals that are self owns uh, in in the case of C. So yeah, uh, this is a very common uh, uh, tactic that uh, authoritarians use around the world. All right, let's pivot to your book. I I wanted to uh, uh, commend you for writing it. I, I love the title alone. It's it's a bit provocative. Uh, you know, it's a title where you're just like, okay, wow, this is something that that you don't really hear very Wait, often. Did did you say my book title is provocative? Yeah, a little. Writing a book called "An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West" is provocative. Uh, in a way, because the West is just viewed today with uh, so much self-loathing from people in the West and outside the West. Also, well, that's just loathing. That's not self. But but in in that's I I mean I know who you wrote it for. Um, unfortunately, I don't think the people who <laughs> who you wrote it for are, are likely to read something like that. But but it's I don't it's, know about that. Ha- One woman did, Melissa. I got a, a message from, on yeah. Twitter from a woman who read one, a, a thing and I translated. Uh, a Putin speech, and she messaged me uh, saying, "Oh my God, thank you for doing this. Oh my God, I can't wait to read your book, and I'm going to buy it now." And she sent me five messages about how she's buying the book, and now she's bought the book, and now the book's been delivered. And then she read it and basically ha- started hate spamming me every day for the next week, go- telling me how oh much an idiot I am. Uh, so uh, some of them are likely well, to read it, Melissa. The outcome, though, mm, questionable. Well, the, the reason I say it's controversial is because, in a way, it's a defense of the West, and and anyone mm. trying to defend Western values and Western civilization right now is, as you you guys were discussing earlier, is painted as far right. Um, that includes people like Douglas Murray and, and really all of us. You know, if you you're taking a pro civilization view um, gen, it, today in mainstream Western discourse, is kind of controversial. It shouldn't be. I think that's the tragedy of this all of, of, of this, but. But it is, and and so I, I'm grateful that you you wrote the book, um, and you know I I'm just trying to uh, I'd like to go into it a little bit um, about uh, about the book. One one part which I, I was I found really interesting was you mentioned this kind of a uh, the way language is being co opted here in the West to kind of usher in this kind of radical new agenda that, that undercuts Western civilization. Can you go into that a little bit? 
Yeah, well, first of all, setting the context a little bit, I'm sure you two know where political correctness from, but it comes from, but most people don't, and it comes from the Soviet Union. It was uh, invented to be able to prevent people from speaking the truth because it was politically inconvenient. It never had anything to do with not offending people, uh, being you know respectful of others, not not mistreating minorities. That's not what political correctness ever had anything to do with. It was always about you can't say this because it is inconvenient. Even though it may be factually correct, it is politically incorrect, right? But the thing that you're talking about is an even more sleight of hand. And of course, it's partly a natural process, but partly not because language is now enforced through institutions and, uh, and all sorts of other things. But if you change the meaning of a word, you, autom- you change the law without changing the law. So if you change the meaning of safety from meaning the absence of physical violence to my feelings won't hurt, then you change the law which governs how people should provide safety or ensure safety or whatever. So you're going to get to a point where a law that once said, well, people shouldn't be able to be physically assaulted, this law now says people shouldn't be able to speak their mind. It's a very natural, obvious progression. If you allow the, the meanings of these words to to gradually evolve over time, I'm not saying it changes overnight because it can't, right? But there's just this creep of what the word means. And if you get to a point where the word safety means that no one disagrees with you, well, that law might get enforced. And we have this in the UK. We have a law on the books which says that it is against the law to be grossly offensive and people are arrested what? for posting memes on Facebook, mm. <laughs> right? That's how it works. So I I actually have kind of a technical legal question about that out of sheer curiosity. I trained as a lawyer in the States before my current job. You read these headlines from the UK and Germany, like uh, one on uh, Social Today, 90 arrested in house-to-house raids for social media offense. That was in, I think, Stuttgart, Germany. But in the the UK, how how does that work? I mean, so... If your IP address, I guess if you're not using Tor, your Twitter account is linked to unoffensive meme, they'll send armed policemen to get you and you'll be charged with a crime. Is that something that happens with any regularity? Well, the 90 people stormed by police, we, I haven't, we haven't had anything remotely like that in the UK. So that, that, I don't know. And I don't know anything about Germany either, if, whether that's happened or not. But in the UK, we, we, we have routinely people arrested for posting an offensive Facebook post or tweets or, you know, you're YouTube probably video. familiar with the Count Dankula story. Yeah, uh, I was going to uh, say. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the, the Count Dankula, when, and, and, you know, I know him and uh, he's not a racist guy. He's just a, a, an internet kind of trolley personality. And he, when the newspapers write about him, they're legally allowed to call him a Nazi hate criminal because he, he did a video, Right. So it's not just about the money that he was fined. It's about this is your reputation now. You are now a Nazi yeah. hate criminal, a convicted not or whatever it was, a convicted whatever. It's not a good thing, and, and it happens regularly. Now, the you know every time it happens, the police eventually come out and are like, "Well, this was a bit of a mistake." Most of the time, Count Dankula was unique in that he was actually convicted, and there are some other people who've been convicted, but generally they're like. Well, you know, this was a mistake. But of course, if people didn't come out and didn't protest against it, they wouldn't consider it a mistake. Because they only say it's a mistake when there's a backlash. Yeah. And right. just to follow up on this one, because I, I'd wondered about this too. This is, you see this on Twitter or Facebook, something like that. 
Yeah, this is a real story. Washington Examiner um, and Washington Post, a short piece. Germany raids homes over hate speech and insults on social media. You got a couple articles, September 27, 2022 and November 3rd, 2022. Hundreds of homes, about 200 were raided. Electronic devices have been confiscated and more than 1,000 Germans have been charged since it looks like 2018 for posting offensive social media content. Um, Adam Santoriano, anyway, blah, blah, blah. But Adam Santoriano of the New York Times is preparing what's going to probably be the long form piece on this. But yeah, they've they've decided to crack down on uh, online talk. They've had enough. So they're apparently arresting both kind of German right wing lads and Arab immigrants for talking shit to each other on the Internet, basically. So it's door to door. They've got they've got guys out there in body armor knocking down doors and arresting these Internet guys. I've been curious about that. Well. Well, when it comes when it comes to the secret police, the Germans have had a lot of practice. You know what I mean? Like they know how, they know how to execute a good plan. Oh no! Yeah. Wow. Germans know how to build things. I mean, you know, roads, trains. Yeah, it's a, it's a long. History. Sorry, Melissa, was that too far? It, it, no, as a Jew, I'm allowed to make that joke. That's true. No, that's true. I mean, I I understand Germany's sensitivity to this, but but they are <laughs> they are going down such a dark path, and you know. Yeah, I, I, I am not familiar with with uh, German law, but I do know that they have one of the most stringent, you know, uh, laws when it comes to censoring Holocaust denial. Um, yeah. Which you know, like a Kanye West would not be able to say what he's been saying uh, in Germany; he would actually be in jail for for all the crap he's been saying recently. Yeah. Yeah, and and anywhere that actually inherited the the British Penal Code, uh, Singapore included. We have the same law, so I've always grown up knowing that if I say anything that um, my neighbor feels offended by, he can file a police report, and that does happen. Um, and the police mm. will come pay me a visit. That's just how it works. Uh, you know, just you're right. There, there are difficulties in tracking people down on message boards and things like that. But, but when you have a you know government that that can basically subpoena a company to reveal the IP address of a person, that's not hard to to find the individual. But most of the time, it actually takes your fellow citizens to report you. Once a police report is filed, it you know the police are obligated to actually come in and look into things, and uh, that's when you see these kind of like really funny tweets, like the Metro Police or something is investigating some joke posted on on Twitter uh, or posted on Facebook, um, and you know this, this idea of like the police not dealing with actual crimes and like instead going to a house to interrogate somebody about, or, you know, I don't know, a, a, a joke about two genders or something, which is, which actually is happening in, in the UK is actually pretty, I mean, it's funny, but it's, it's shocking. Yeah. Well, it's shocking to you guys. Uh, most people in this country don't care. Um, they don't pay attention to this. It doesn't particularly bother them because uh, you guys have a first amendment and a culture of, See, you can have a First Amendment and and still not have free speech, but you, you America right. has a culture of that, right? Uh, and the culture is, look, you know, I may very strongly disagree with things and I may be offended by them, but you're allowed to say that. And I will defend your right to say the things that I hate you saying. That, that you know, for the most part, that's what America, America and Americans are for and what they believe. In the UK, we don't have that. And, and so uh, we, we are a society where this happens. Uh, and I'm actually reassured by how shocked you guys are, Barry, because it kind of reminds me that some of us are still sane. Hmm. 
Well, and all of this has a huge impact on comedy, right? Which is some, which is a, a profession that that you left. Have you I left did. comedy or? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm on a on a break for as long as it lasts, and if I always say if it's the rest of my life, I'm really happy with that. It's fine. Um, but but you never know. I might just suddenly decide I, I want to do that again. The main reason I stopped was just it was a very hard lifestyle, and doing trigonometry became a full time job, and I can't have two jobs. And of the jobs I want to do well, I, I want to do trigonometry well. So the, I've been focusing on that. Uh, so I actually don't know. May, maybe maybe Melissa, we're, we're all you know exaggerating maybe in the two years since lockdown i haven't done comedy there's been an explosion of free speech on the british comedy circuit and you've got all sorts of comedians pushing all sorts of boundaries <laughs> uh, and uh, making incredibly cutting edge material and really entertaining audiences with something new and different i'm sure that's happening but i i, I haven't i haven't seen it well i mean i will say myself and jane watched some of the british and canadian comedy specials for a date night about a week ago and uh, they were all pretty much what you'd have seen a year or two ago. One was called, is it a bird? And was a trans female comedian talking about their issues in the industry. And that was, that was pretty typical. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the Renaissance has come yet. Well, yeah, I, I call you a skeptic on this one. Will. I'm sure it's happening. People, people keep telling me I was, I was wrong about free speech and comedy in 2015 and uh, 2016 and 2017, and especially 2018 and 2019 when I was talking about it. Um, so maybe they they've they've transformed the comedy scene now that I'm not on it and made it incredibly cutting edge and uh, brilliant and innovative. Um, uh, I'm sure I'm sure that's happening. I'm, I'm really certain. Moment you left, that's when it began. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, well, look, this is what people tell me. There's no problem with free speech and British comedy, and you know, I'm sure they're right. But I will say this: when we went to America, I really got the sense very strongly that that isn't the case in America nearly in the same way. And I think it's partly because America is a bigger place. And so, you know, Joe Rogan can go and set up his club in, in, in Austin and do, I mean, we went to that club, like, let's just say, I, I wonder if some comedians might've been arrested if they'd done some of those jokes in the UK, genuinely, I'm not joking. So, so there's freedom there and, you know, people don't feel as restricted, which is great. It's great for comedy to have that opportunity in the UK. Uh, I'm not saying it's still like that cause I'm sure it's transformed as I keep saying, but when I was doing it, it was a very small industry. <laughs> yes, exactly. We must cross ourselves. You know, it was a very small industry, very, um, uh, very kind of one opinionated and very opinionated at the same time, having one opinion, but having it very strongly, leaning very much in one direction, uh, thinking that, you know, a big important part of how you pick people to promote, et cetera, is to do with their sex and their sexuality and their skin color. And so uh, since then, we've seen lots of comedy shows actually shut down in the UK because people stopped watching them. They were the biggest shows that people used to watch, Mock the Week, uh, The Mash Report, which I actually wrote on for a bit. Uh, and, you know, I'm told Live at the Apollo, which is the biggest one, is, is next. Um, so that's what was um, happening when I was there. But I, I wouldn't want to comment on the industry. I'm no longer there. Okay. Um, actually, one or two, I guess, quick questions. One of them that uh, Mel and I talked about before the show, but a kind of an offshoot of the general free speech idea. When you talk about the redefinition of words changing laws, that's actually something we've seen in both the US and the UK. So I mean, mm -hmm. in, in all seriousness, from a legal standpoint, people will now say that, for example, the definition of racism is any system that produces differences in performance between groups. So if 
whites or Jewish Americans of all colors or outperform blacks who outperform Hispanics on a standardized test. The test is racist and you have to get rid of it. But probably the ultimate example of this is the attempt to change sort of very core human terms like man and woman when you get into the trans and non-binary issue. And you and uh, Francis mm -hmm. Foster are known for talking a lot about this kind of trans and trans rights issues and so on. Um, just, I mean, this is condensing a complex issue into one sentence, but what's your take on that? And also, why does there seem to be a backlash now in Britain where there, there's a big move back from the, you know, misgendering me as a crime to things that no one would have expected two years ago, I'm guessing, like the Tavistock Gender Clinic shut down um, amidst what seemed to me like a series of excuses, like someday we might open up smaller local versions, but their lawsuits are being prepped by 43 mothers or whatever it is. What, what's your take on this and why is Britain taking such a huge step back? Well, that's that's a really good question, actually. Um... First of all, I, I will just say that I don't think Francis and I are known for talking about it, but I hope we're known for giving people who have strong views about that issue an opportunity to speak. That's kind of, that's our angle on it. I, I'm not someone who's going around campaigning on this stuff, but I, I do think it's important. And and so if someone wants to come and talk about it and they're sensible and reasonable, then we'll happily have them on. That's kind of my angle on it. Uh, and the reason I feel strongly about it is because uh, I care about, I mean, again, you can come at it in different angles, but first and foremost, I care about the truth. Uh, I care about what's true. And a man who chops off his genitals does not become a woman. I mean, that's a fact. And if people want to disagree with that, they can. Uh, but, you know, it's, 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 we used to get told that in biology. And I, I, hope, I hope we still teach that in biology. Uh, maybe we don't. I don't know. So for, for number one, I'm interested in truth. Number two, uh, I think that uh, the risk of this uh, becoming an ideology, which it has done to some extent, um, and being something that young, vulnerable, autistic children or gay children are exposed to, I think is a crime. Uh, I think the fact that there may be dozens of children who've, who've, who've and we know that there are. I mean, we see them all the time. The detransitioners, right? Yeah. Dozens of people who who transitioned phys physiologically, who changed their bodies permanently, who made themselves infertile, and so on and so forth. Massively reduced their life expectancy, exposed themselves to serious risk of serious complications. All of that happened because some adults wanted to feel that they're progressive. Uh, I've got a problem with that. Uh, sorry. Yeah. If that makes me a bigot, I guess I am a bigot. Um, and the third thing, of course, is there are contexts, and I don't think it's nearly as often as people like to make out. I don't think trans women are breaking into female bathrooms every every moment, and that's all they wake up. They wake up every day and they go to a female bathroom to try and, you know, oppress some women. And I don't think that's what happens. But there are contexts like that situation, and like a female prison, and like other sports where there is. A, a serious and obvious th either threat or unfairness uh, that women are exposed to as a result of, of this becoming the, you know, as, as a result of people attempting to normalize the mantra that, you know, if you say you're a woman, you're a woman. Well, I have every, every bit of compassion for trans people. I don't want to see them mistreated or discriminated against or mocked or anything else. I think their lives are hard enough. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, I'm going to say things that aren't true 
or agree with exposing children or women to to danger or, or unfairness. I, I think that's wrong. And and so that's why we talk a lot about it. Why are we making progress in the UK in, in dealing with this? Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely don't know, actually. It's very strange because the country that doesn't have the free speech that we were talking about only uh, moments ago, I actually think one of the reasons is that we don't have uh, privatized medicine yeah. like you guys do. Mm. I think there's no one, there's no no one gets to make money from this in a way that would personally affect their income. You know what I mean? Like there isn't a company out there selling loads of drugs that has influence on how things work uh, that has influence in that way. It's just it, 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 the whole system doesn't work that way. You basically can't profit by pushing something like this because we have a public healthcare system, right? So I think one of the reasons that it's continuing in America is that it, it people are making money off it, right? It's not just ideology, wow. it's also profitable, right? In the UK, we don't have that issue because it's a public healthcare system. So uh, I think most people, even in those situations, they, they wouldn't have been operating on that basis. They would have been going, we must have compassion for these vulnerable children and they say they're trans and I've been taught all this gender ideology, woo-woo, I can help save this young person's life who otherwise will commit suicide. Like that's that would have been their motivation. Whereas in America, I, I'm certain there are people who are not thinking that at all. They're thinking, well, these kids want this and my job in the free market of marketplace of goods and services is to provide this gender transition for a million pounds or whatever dollars or whatever it is or however much they cost. Maybe it's not a million, maybe it's a hundred K, maybe it's twenty K. It doesn't really matter. It's There's money to be made. Right. So the, 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 there's money to be made, the market will provide, right? So I think that's a big part of it. Another part of it is we have a, a, the country smaller, and that means that if you have a, a, the right number of people in the right positions who care about this stuff, you actually can make an impact, you know? And having people on, uh, we had a woman called uh, Posey Parker on our show um, mm. that got a million views on this issue, right? Now, a million views for Britain is not a million views for America. And if, if a lot of those views came from the UK, that's a hell of a lot of people that have seen that video, right? And that means there are people who care about that issue at the very least. They may not agree, but they care about that issue. And, um, you know, we've had that um, a big push from people like Posey Parker and Helen Joyce and J.K. Rowling, yeah. you know, who's who's obviously made a difference in, in it all. Uh, I mean, my four star. There's, there's a bit. I'm going to forget someone. It's like, uh, it's like giving the, the thanks at some kind of awards thing. You always forget somebody. <laughs> but um, Kathleen Stock. I mean, loads, lo- loads of very, very brave people who came out and spoke out against it. Who were, uh, you know, sensible, rational, you know, university professors, authors, uh, you know, mm. all, all sorts of different things, lawyers, etc. Who Alison Bailey is another one. Uh, and then I think. You know, the Kira Bell case made a big difference because that was kind of like the first breakthrough where just people for the first time, I think, in the general public would have seen someone who'd experienced transition that had been attempted to reverse and people could see the effects and listen to a person mm-hmm. who who talked in a, in a different way and, and all that sort of stuff. And they were really confronted by it. So I think there's been a few things along the way. And also, it was the case of the Tavistock, they were whistleblowers. So brave people coming forward. We had one of them on the show, Marcus Evans, talking about it. His wife was involved as well. So there were lots of people who actually took concrete steps also to, to make some kind of impact. Um, and for some reason in America, you guys just, 
even though I think you're in a better place in terms of your ability to speak, you haven't made as much progress on this issue as I think I think needs to be made. Yeah, there's a there's a lot there that's really in really interesting, actually. Like one element might be America's regionalization, where the more conservative states like South Dakota, even Florida, right. where th this is essentially illegal at any rate, Tennessee aren't too much worried about the issue. And I mean, Florida alone is about third the size of the UK without any criticism of the UK. I mean, so that's that that isolationism probably has a lot to do with this. If you live in California, there's not much challenge to these procedures. And if you live in Florida, there's not much support for them. We're kind of, I mean, almost a Brazil style or EU style country, like a gigantic federation of states that are nothing like one another, as you know. For profit also does come into it. I mean, the figure I gave for top plus bottom surgery you know, I think if you're American, and as we all probably are by this point, you're in the upper middle class or whatever, we do have one of the world's better medical systems, but if you can pay for it. I mean, right. so that, that figure, you can take your daughter in there, insurance now has to cover this, and they can, quote unquote, become your son for this price. I mean, yes, of course, they're going to be edgy doctors that are going to specialize in this, that probably come out of the field of plastic surgery or whatever. Um Well, as we saw from the Matt Walsh documentary, but they might not even be about that they might just be trans themselves and they're part of this movement yeah. and they believe this is the right thing for the child and they're acting in the best interest of the child as, as they see it. And that, that could also be true. Of course. And this is one of those things that's very interesting because there's an obvious point there that any smart layman would say, but that I think all of us would kind of hesitate to say on the air, right? That if you're trans and you're an activist, you would probably prefer to some extent that there'd be more trans people. You don't think there's anything wrong with this at all you're comfortable ethically performing the surgery, so on down the line. So if you have a large number of activist doctors in a profit-seeking system, you're going to get more of this. Yeah. Just like we have right. more yeah. of everything in the USA. I mean, what is it? We use prescription drugs eight times as much as the Brits, 10 times as much mm -hmm. as the French. I mean, I don't think every young man actually has ADD in the USA, assuming that's a that's a real mm -hmm. disease of the mind, but that's that's a different topic. All right. on um, uh, Melissa, do you have any, any comments or questions here? Any? No, no, I, it just it never occurred to me about the for-profit thing, but but you know that that can be empirically looked at. I mean, you can look at all the countries, like even in Scandinavia, that have, uh, you know, socialized socialized medicine, so to speak, and and look at what they're doing about uh, this kind of gender, you know, how to treat gender dysphoria. Um, it seems like the U.S. is actually probably the most radical when it comes to this uh, kind of solutions that 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 you know we we pursue as a as a country it just seems like that that is actually supporting that yeah it's it's anyway, a really interesting a question point. because yeah. i i try to tone it down actually for normal interactions but i'm really into sort of wonky data like this i would guarantee that relationship probably exists and it's one of those subsurface mm -hmm. things we don't generally think about like why do cops on average shoot black men more than white men? The almost total explanation is social class. Crime plays a role. There's a higher rate of crime there. But we don't think about those those drivers you don't look at, you don't see. So things like racism often get blamed, ethnic conflict, political party, the visible, obvious stuff. And it's it's mm -hmm. often deeper than that. And that's something we need to we need to try to realize. Um Well, but also we shouldn't forget, Will, if I may add, that there are two dimensions to this. One of them is the incentive structure, human beings respond to incentives, but also yes. there is ideology too. Of course, right? yeah. Like we, we can't, yeah, there's a big chunk of ideology too. Um, and and they, they come well together because you've got well-intentioned people who want to help children 
and the people who, as Melissa says, will provide the very latest in technology to help these poor children. That's how they, some of them would see it, right? And if you were a surgeon who, or not a surgeon or a medical company or whatever, you know, that's what you're telling yourself. If you're a CEO of a big pharma company that's providing Lupron or whatever, that, that's, mm. that's what you're going, well, we're saving the kids. Otherwise, they're, we've been told, yeah, feels good. They're, otherwise they're going to go and kill themselves. There's a transgenocide going on. Right. Yeah. And I, I also don't think a lot, of, a lot of people don't understand how influential, I mean, and you mentioned this, Constantine, when you're talking about Britain, this is a smaller country, so it might be even more intense there. But people don't understand how, in, how influential a few activists can be when it comes to these niche topics that most people don't understand. So, I mean, mm. I don't, I don't want to mislabel the association. It might be what's called the ACA, one of the child care associations, one of the medical organizations. But in the, the USA, it's commonly said, well, even your leading medical organization for kids voted for transgender surgeries for puberty blockers. If you actually look at the vote, um, for what I've seen talking with friends who are doctors or in the medical community, it was like 53 to 37. The organization has something on the order of 60,000 members that easily could be wrong for anyone watching. But that's how almost all of these go. Like the people that are in some non-methods panel at a big conference that are interested in this topic will come out and vote on it. And so this is very often dominated by sort of either the most radical people interested in this edgy field of surgery or like their reactionary older opponents. That's who makes the call. Like the 60,000 other doctors are there to drink and you know, look for dates and explore the beaches of Hawaii where the conference absolutely had to be had for some reason and so on down the line as everyone does at business mm -hmm. events. So I mean that that's how you get every leading medical organization, you know, supporting all of this. That would have been the case for almost anything lobotomy until 40 years ago so on. So many people don't understand that. The idea is all the authorities are stacked against me. That could represent maybe 300 people total. It's a Bolsheviks all over again. Yeah, it's no well the, one of them um it was actually some Chinese general sounds kind of harsh, but it was one of Mao's fighters that said, what was it, 2%, 3%, like a few committed fighting men and women can manipulate a group of almost any size. It was like, yep. it takes, and it was, it was very yep. like high IQ, it was very mathematical, but it takes 2.1 people that know what they're doing to control a group of 100. And you can use yeah. this to control cities. That's how many troops you need to send in. That almost certainly remains true in intellectual combat, physical, moral, so on down the line. Because most people don't care. Most people want to go home, eat a sandwich, hang out with their partner. Now, That's a very good point. I, I wish I could be one of those people, but I can't. <laughs> yeah. I wish I, could just, I wish I could just not care and go home and have a sandwich. Well, it's like the old line. Um, somebody, maybe it was James Lindsay. I'll make it for you. You'll make it for you. <laughs> Boom. Gender roll, all kind of offensive stuff going yeah. on. But like somebody in like the the group recently said, put a put a trigger warning at the beginning. Gender roles are discussed in this podcast. Are <laughs> enacted, enacted. Anti-feminism. But no, like it's like the old line. Whoever the the source was in this case, but like it would be very easy just to believe in God and be completely trad. Like you know, be a husband or trad wife, go to church two times yeah. a week, and just like accept what you're told. So you can focus on your job, making art or doing your craft, doing your trade. You don't worry about any of this bullshit at all. Excuse the language. Just like, you know, whatever the big guy tells you, the new pope, et cetera, that is the rule. It's very difficult to not be able to just believe this, whether or not you have a personal spirituality. Is it good? Is it bad? That's for each individual to decide. No, I think it's a better life. I just wish I could switch the part of my brain off that doesn't let me do that. That's all.
but I think that's a great life. Uh, if people if people are doing that, I'm quite jealous, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, at some level, being able to switch between quote unquote sub, dom, lord, craftsman, man, woman, et cetera, in your brain at will would be great. It would be a unique ability. I too wish I could do this, but unfortunately, no human can. But human brings us to a fascinating question. So, Constantin, as we as we wrap up the 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 podcast, sort of, and this this question itself may take a bit, but uh, Angel Eduardo always used to conclude with one final item that I, I think is a really good one, which is the the line. What does being pro-human mean to you? And I, th- I think we should, Melissa and I should ask you that. What does what does being pro-human mean to you in terms of perhaps involvement with FAIR, but also more broadly just trying to help people discussing some of these issues, whether that's you know helping kids avoid bad choices or just you know moving whole blocks in society forward? What does being pro-human mean to you? Well, uh, this will... Be an answer that's heavily influenced by the fact fact that I became a dad six and a half months ago. Congrats! Aww. But thank you. Um, I think, and I've been thinking about this a lot. I actually I was invited to do a debate at the Oxford Union, which was about has woke culture gone to? I can't be, I can't be asked to talk about this again. So I made I when I was talking about it, I really made it about. I said, I, I don't want to talk to those of you who already agree with me and rehash the same free speech and mm-hmm. all this other bullshit that we all know. You already agree with me. You're going to vote for our side of the debate anyway. I want to talk to the woke people. And I, I was basically talking to them for 10 minutes about how if you, they believe above all, that, that, I mean, apparently that's what we're being told, that young people have climate anxiety and they think that the climate issue is the most important issue ever and it's it, and it's really important and i said to them, look if if you if you think that's important if you think that's the most important issue uh, then wokeness is exactly the route by which you'll never solve that issue because you guys the bright young minds of oxford those of you who are woke aren't thinking about how do you go and solve that problem you're thinking about how the problems about racism or how you've been oppressed by the previous generations instead of going and studying and inventing the thing that's going to solve the thing right? That's your job. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of whining and crying and complaining, which is what wokeness. And hopefully it was more elaborate than the pathetic way I've just expressed it now. But um, the the point is, uh, I think what we have to get to as a human, as a a species everywhere in the world, particularly in the West where we're most affected by it, being pro-human means being pro-having children and pro the idea that the planet will endure because, and human beings and the species will endure because why are we so bloody arrogant that we think we're the first generation in history that cannot solve their own fucking problems? When, when did this happen? When, 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 when did we decide we're just all going to roll over and die unless we make everyone really poor? When did this happen? Who voted for this? Where, where did we sign on the dotted line to say, I, I want to believe that I'm far more pathetic than my grandparents? Why can our generation not solve our problems? Why can't the next generation solve our problems? We've always done this. Every great transformation of human society is a product of technology. It's what it is, right? And technology means going from not having fire to having fire. You don't think that changed human society? You don't think the move from being hunter-gatherers to agrarians changed culture and politics and how people related to each other? This is what happens. We solve our problems with technology, right? I didn't sign up to be, you know, the last generation on earth that puts the lights out. I believe 
as a human species, we have the ability to solve our problems. And climate change, if, if you think it's as serious as it is, go and, go and solve it. Go and solve it. And the more people we have on the planet, the more solutions we have in the bank, potentially, right? So th that's my what mean, pro being pro-human means to me is let's stop moping about and let's go, we are the product of generations of millennia of human beings who managed to survive despite the difficulties we faced. Let's do the same. Oof. Love that answer. How's that? Sounds good. Love me. it. It's perfect. Constantine Kissin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Really enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.